concentrated on verses 7 or 6, uh, really through 15, uh, on Wednesday night. Uh, don't overlook its connection to the idea of giving, which is where he first begins his discussion here in regards to their practicing of righteousness. And that was one of the things I brought out Wednesday night, uh, that prayer, uh, prayer was a part of practicing righteousness, not self-righteousness, but a righteousness exceeding that of the Pharisees, uh, really the righteousness of Christ. So prayer uh, is not a means to obtain righteousness as, as much as it is an expression of having been made righteous in Christ. So prayer uh, really should come uh, natural to the, to the believer. Uh, I think the only reason it doesn't come more naturally to us is because of our uh, just our inclination to operate in the flesh and, and according to the old man so often. So that's part of sanctification is putting to death uh, the old man. So it stands to reason that uh, prayer would might be one of the most challenging of the Christian practices uh, for us to do. I talked about in chapter 6 verse 5 in regards to praying without hypocrisy. Uh, although he mentions that with giving, I think the same thing is true of prayer and it described how they love to do that. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. So uh, part of that introduction on Wednesday night was talking about prayer in regards to hypocrisy in prayer. Uh, so, so easy to be praying uh, for other reasons rather than God being the audience or the direction of our prayer, uh, being overly mindful of folks, uh, of what people will say, of what they think of us by our praying. Now, I'm not suggesting, I may have mentioned this Wednesday, but certainly if I didn't, I should have, but I'm not suggesting that we're not mindful of what we're praying in terms of how people are hearing that because we can be greatly encouraged by prayer. Uh, but for me, the most encouraging prayer is, is the prayer that I'm privy to in hearing where someone is, is praying to God. Uh, they are communing with God through prayer. Uh, that is some of the most encouraging prayer for me because it draws me uh, to want to have that same experience as well. So, so there is a sense in which prayer is communion with God. Uh, I talked as well Wednesday night about verse 7, uh, really a non-formulated but earnest prayer, <clears throat> making the point that uh, the model prayer is a model. It is in some sense a formula uh, but it is, not a, it is not a formula in which we check off the boxes and then we're guaranteed that God has heard our prayer, not, not to mention that he would answer that prayer. I spoke about that in terms of a mechanism, uh, a meaningless repetition, he says, like the Gentiles do. So prayer is not just some mechanism that if you get it right, uh, everything will work out. Uh, in fact, I'm amazed, and to me, part of the challenge of prayer throughout my Christian life is, is what God does in me and through, or in me through prayer, uh, through the effort to pray uh, all the things he does. And sometimes it seems as though God is responsive uh, to prayer in this way uh, and, other, and other times in another way. But what all those have in common, I think, is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. It seems as though those are the times when I, uh, I feel drawn most closely to God in those moments. So so it's not, there's not some formula. If you get this right, uh, you, will have your, you will have your request. Uh, you know, the, we talk, uh, our Catholics often do the rosary and they'll uh, pray through the rosary and count the beads as they go. And it's formulaic. If you just do it this way, then God hears, God's honored by this. 
this model prayer is more than just a formula or a mechanism uh, for you to say that, okay, I've prayed today. And I spent a lot of time on that Wednesday as well. I mentioned as well is that it is submissive prayer in verse 8. Uh, it's a, it's an, an, a prayer that acknowledges God's omniscience. He knows what you need before you ask. And, and these are ways that we approach this prayer. This is the model prayer. So when we approach this praying, uh, we do so already understanding that God knows my need before I ask. Uh, he probably knows my wants too, but more importantly, he knows what it is that's needed even before I ask. And I think the model prayer indicates that when we pray, we ought to be mindful of these things. These things ought to, they ought to be in our minds and in our hearts and shape the way we pray, uh, the way we pray to God. It recognizes that our request may not perfectly align with God's specific will or purposes. It just acknowledges it's a submissive prayer. Yes, Father, this is my request. This is, you said, let your request be made known to God. This is what I'm doing, but I'm understanding that you already know what the need is. And you may filter through all my requests and determine that this thing and that thing are not needs, not according to my purposes in your life. So I'm not providing for those things in your life. However, these are needs and I know and I have ordained that these are needs in your life and I will answer and I will provide for those needs. So it's a submissive prayer in verse 8. Verse 9, I shared that it was directed to the Father. I emphasize we're praying here as children. And then we ought to be mindful when we pray to our Father uh, that we are praying based upon a relationship established um, through Christ and by our union with Christ. In Christ, we have become the children of God. Uh, I'm not saying that that will manifest itself verbally in your prayer, but when you're praying, you ought to be mindful of that. Otherwise, you have no relationship with the Father to be calling him Father. And so it's so much, uh, all of these in some ways are, even if they aren't articulated in a prayer, they ought to be shaping the way we're praying and shaping the heart of the prayer. And so we are praying to the Father. I mentioned in that Wednesday night as well, we're mindful of it and all that has been accomplished to make that so, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, the propitiatory and substitutionary death of Christ, the spirit by which we pray, Abba, Father, all these things ought to be weighing into our minds when we pray. And as a model prayer, we're addressing the Father. It's interesting, I had a discussion I don't know if I mentioned this Wednesday or not, but with someone a couple of weeks ago, and they were having some discussions around the table at work, and, and uh, there was a, a Muslim guy getting them all tangled up there, and he was saying things like, well, who do you pray to? And he said, I pray to God. And he says, well, then who is Jesus praying to? Jesus, is Jesus God? And he said, yes. And he said, well, who was Jesus praying to in the garden? And, and that whole di dialogue that they usually do. And, and I could see that it caused him great distress because he wasn't answering those questions. And to me, the, the, issue, the issue involved in not being able to address those questions is not understanding the distinct full persons of the Godhead. Uh, Jesus, the Son, has never been the Father. <laughs> And the Father has never been the Son. And the Son and the Father have never been the Holy Spirit. But all three are God. They are one in that they are God. Spirit, Son, and Father, God. And so he was asking me, you ever heard somebody pray? I've heard people do this. And 
uh, they, will, they will go to the prayer, and it's kind of humorous to me in some ways, but they, they say, uh, Father God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, and, and they're addressing them all. Like you know, Jesus says specifically here in the model, address your prayer to the Father. And to me, when you do that, it exalts the work of the Son, which brought you into fellowship with God as, the father, as a father, as children. So, so not to address your prayer to the Father, I think, diminishes the, the, the substitutionary work of Christ, our union with Christ. It, it diminishes that to some degree. And why would you appeal to the Father and diminish the very means by which you're brought into fellowship with the Father? You wouldn't do that. And so it's important that we address our prayer to the Father, but not only that, but to remember how it is that he became our Father. It's also verse 9 right on the heels of that as well. Just when we're thinking in regards to our personal and the tenderness father-child relationship, he goes to the other and he says, in heaven. And so he goes from intimate uh, condescending all the way to transcendent. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And so it's interesting to me that in the model prayer, Jesus is encouraging us to know about the intimacy and the tenderness and the relational factor with our Father and all the work necessary to that. But at the same time, in the very next phrase, he reminds us that he's still transcendent. And I tried to strike a balance with that Wednesday night. Yes, he is our Father. But be careful of over-familiarity that causes you to forget that he is also a God who, do, who is to be reverenced greatly. He is a holy God. He is all-powerful, all-knowing. And no matter what you're praying, he knows the intent of the heart. And he's scrutinizing the very motivations for the prayers that we offer up. They're all open to him. And that's reason for, yes, I'm thankful that I have intimacy in Christ with the Father. And I'm thankful for that father-child relationship and the tenderness and the mercy and the grace and the com comfort in all of that. But I, not, I never cease to be praying to a holy, infinitely holy God. If you find yourself leaning one way or the other, you're missing, you're, you're really, again, diminishing the work of Christ because he's brought us into the presence of the Father. Uh, so it's directed to a transcendent God. I mentioned Wednesday night as well that it's directed to the one whose name is and is to be hallowed or whole, made holy or set apart or considered consecrated and sacred. His name is holy. As I shared Wednesday, that's both a declaration and also an, ex an exclamation there, but it is also a call. Uh, his name is to be hallowed. Hallowed be thy name. And so that has to shape the way we pray. We need to remember regard, in regards to the name. I wrote, I shared Wednesday night, but how humbled and how silenced and how honest and earnest would be our prayer if we but kept in mind that the infinite glory, uh, the infinite glory and holiness of the one to whom we pray. Remember, be mindful in prayer as we're praying of his holiness. I was talking about uh, Wednesday night, these little terms people use these days, the big guy and the man upstairs and, and how they really ought to make us cringe in regards to the holy name of God. You'll see in a lot of writings, particularly from Jewish uh, folks, that they'll hyphenate God, G hyphen D. Um, that, that is an emblematic of a reverence, almost a fear for misusing, calling using in vain the name of God, which would be in violation of the commandments themselves. 
So we remember when we're praying, it is to that holy name that we are praying. And picking up tonight, uh, I just want to share some more from those passages as well. But let's read this together. I'm going to read beginning in verse 6 through 15. But Jesus says, but when you, but you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition that the Gentiles do for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And I think verse 14 and 15, I think he's actually commenting uh, commenting farther up there when he says, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven those who have sinned against us. It's almost as if he backs up and is making a commentary on that text. But he says, for if you forgive others of their transgressions, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. So tonight I just wanted to pick up where I left off Wednesday and share from verse nine in regards to this prayer uh, in verse uh, 10, excuse me, but this is a prayer also that is mindful of the kingdom of God. And I think he can mean two things there. Uh, we're praying in, in recognition that the kingdom is to come to its consummation someday. There is going to be the return of Christ, the consummation of the age. And as I'm praying, as I'm praying and communing with my father, I'm mindful that he is bringing all things to their consummation. There will be a day when sin is judged and those who have been delivered from sin will enjoy eternity in the presence of God and the, in the glory of God. And so we're praying mindful of that. Uh, that's critical because I don't get overly distressed of times that are tough in this world. As dark as I was speaking of it being this morning, I don't become overwhelmed and despairing and distrust or distressed in those moments simply because I am mindful of the kingdom of God. Jesus says in the gospels as well about being anxious and seeking after what we will wear and what we will eat. And he says at the end of that discourse, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So we're mindful in prayer of the kingdom of God. It's, it's coming. It's the fullness of its coming. But I also think it could mean here that we're mindful of its manifestation, particularly as it regards to how I'm praying. Think about when you pray about things, when you bring your requests made known to God, when you're petitioning and when we're circulating our prayer list and memory, remembering our people that we love who are going through difficult times. Does it ever occur to you when you're praying in regards to the manifestation of God's kingdom, uh, God's rule in the world? When we lift up someone we love for healing, as it cross our mind that, Lord, heal them so that it might manifest your sovereign rule in the universe. You have mastery over disease and over sickness. 
That's why I think he's, this is a model prayer. This is to be shaping the way we're thinking when we're praying. Be mindful of the kingdom of God. It's ultimate coming and consummation, but also it's manifestation today. Today, when we gather here to worship together, we ought to be mindful of the kingdom of God. What does that involve? Jesus says to those when he came on the scene, uh, the kingdom of God is with you now. Jesus himself is an expression of the kingdom of God, the righteous rule of God, the word of God, the truth of God. All these are expressions or manifestations of the kingdom of God, the rule of God, if you will, or the sovereign rule of God Almighty. How does that affect my praying? If I disregard that, my prayer won't be reflecting that. I might be tempted to just pray on, the, on, a, on a temporal level or on a horizontal level, excluded from the glory of God and the kingdom of God. I'm giving him all these requests sometimes just because this is what I really want. I do love people and I don't want people to suffer. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but are you thinking about that in the context of a manifestation or the display of the glory of God and of his kingdom? You remember the, uh, when the disciples came by the person who was uh, born blind and they asked Jesus, why was this man born blind? And their, I think their conclusions was because they say his sin or his parents' sin. So they were associating his affliction with some sin, immediate sin, personal sin, either in his life or in the life of his parents. And Jesus says something stunning in that moment. He says, neither. In other words, this man's blindness is not directly connected, although sin in the, as the whole brings sickness and things into the world, but they're not connected directly to either this man's sins or those of his parents. And then he says something even more stunning. He's blind so that the glory of God might be revealed in him. Kingdom, kingdom revelation, as it were. So here's a man who's spent his entire life blind, for the very reason that this moment might come and the Lord may heal him of his blindness and thus display the kingdom. So I think when Jesus was praying, it was always to display the kingdom. Remember in John 17 in his prayer to God, he says clearly in his prayer, Father, I come to you, but I know you always hear me. But I come to you in prayer now audibly so they can hear you, so they might see the kingdom. What does Nicodemus, what does Jesus tell Nicodemus? Unless a man is born again, he cannot see what? The kingdom. And so this mindfulness of the kingdom of God is part of the model for how we should be praying. If you're praying exclusive in your thinking of the kingdom of God and its manifestation and revelation, your prayers are not going to be guided and shaped properly to align with such glory as the glory of God. So that's why this is important. That's why I say it's a model. It's, it's not just a prayer to pray verbatim, though there's nothing wrong with that. But it is a model. It is a, it is a, a, a framework in which we ought to be praying and offering up all of our prayers. Always mindful of the kingdom. Always mindful to whom we pray, of the name to whom we pray. Always mindful that he is our father in our union with Christ. Always mindful that he is transcendent from us. His ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. Always mindful of these things, even as we're praying. I was thinking this evening uh, before we came tonight. How I, could, how I could study through this and ingrain this to the degree that all of my prayers, 
almost take for granted that my thinking is this way. In other words, how do I employ this in my prayers? Uh, I don't want to go through my prayers and pause before each request and go through this list. So I want to ingrain this pattern and this framework deep within my spirit so that my prayers naturally flow with these things in mind. And I think that's the goal here. That's why Jesus gives it as a model. So when you pray, pray in this way. Pray in this manner. This is the way you pray. And I think that's what Jesus intends, that this would become so much a part of our mindset when we're praying that our prayers would flow and be directed and guided and shaped by this very framework. So when we pray, we ought to be mindful of the kingdom of God. I wrote this in my notes. It is prayer that reflects kingdom priorities. The prayer values what is valued in the kingdom and rejects what tends to obscure the kingdom or the glory of God. Our requests and supplications, our confessions and petitions and intercessions are offered up with the deliberate consideration of the kingdom of God. How does this relate to the kingdom? How is this lend itself towards the display of the glory of God? How does this play its part in the unfolding and incrementally increasing governance of God in the world, ultimately to be consummated at the return of Christ? My prayers, you think about that, are hugely significant in that they are a part of that. Uh, that struck me this week as well because sometimes I don't know if we grasp, or I certainly haven't grasped, the intricacy and the importance of prayer in that very thing, in God's unfolding of his kingdom and the display of his own glory. Prayer is an ordained means by which God incrementally displays himself or his glory in the world and will be an integral part ultimately in the coming of Christ himself. And to be upon the prayers of his people as God has moved their hearts to pray in this way. In verse 10 as well, this is a prayer that actually prefers or defers, you might say, to the will of God. Notice he says there, your kingdom come, your will be done. Your will be done. He goes on to say, in earth as it is in heaven. So this is not merely a yielding to the will of God, but a preferring of it. There's a big difference, a really big difference. It is no, really no great act of faith to yield to the will of God since the no praying man thinks that, uh, thinks that he can constrain God, the omniscient, omnipotent God, to act contrary to his own will. Rather, it is a great faith that prefers the will of God over his own petitions, even though that petition be good and righteous. So I think he means more when he says, thy will be done. I don't think he means I'll yield to the fact in my prayer that, Lord, you are sovereign and, and I can't constrain you to act apart from your will. So this is what I'd like. But nevertheless, your will is going to take the day here. That's a yielding to a reality. You're exactly right, praying man and praying woman. You are not going to subvert the will of God by your prayers. You're not going to cause him to act contrary to his will by your prayers. And so 
I think he means more here than just simply yielding to the reality that God knows all things and acts according to his own will. Even if our petitions are not in alignment with that, he, he acts according to his own will. But I think he means more here. Pray like this. Take into consideration that even while I pray and recognize the fallibility of my own heart and my own sentiments and my own emotions involved in this pray, I prefer, I prefer the will of God. Thy will be done. I mean, I think you see this reflected by Jesus in the garden. Yes, he expresses, Lord, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. I mean, that don't sound to me like he's yielding in that moment. It sounds like he's saying, I am acknowledging in the fullness of my, my humanity the dread that is before me and the cup that I am about to drink. If there was any other way, oh, Father, remove the cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will be done, but thine be done. You see the preference? It's a preference there. It's not merely a yielding to it. It's a preference and to me, that ought to shape our prayers when we say at the end of our prayer often, when we say, Father, let thy will be done. It ought to be expressed as a, our preference because it's acknowledging that I don't have omniscience. I don't have omnipotence. I am not omnipresent. I may see a physical illness and I ask God to heal that because I love you and I'm acknowledging that I don't want to see you suffering. But the will of God may ordain that suffering to bring you and your spirit into relationship with him. In which case, I don't yield to that will. I prefer that. I'm pre I prefer that he bring you into fellowship with himself because that is a priority to your physical health. And you ought to think the same for me. Yes, there's nothing wrong. Let your requests be made known to God. But what is, the, what is the will of God? That is what we ought to be preferring. So when we say that in our prayer, please, please don't hear that as this is what we would like, but we understand that we're not omniscient. So we're just, we're real, we're acknowledging that your will will take priority. No, it ought to be in our heart, Father. Yes, we are fallible. And yes, these are our desires. And we think they're good and they're right. And they're consistent with the truth of your word. But we prefer your will to reign supreme here. So we're yielding, yes, but not just out of reluctance, but because we prefer it. There's a big difference in that. It may seem nuanced to you, but to my heart, there is a huge difference in those two things. A preference for the will of God. Preferring even to his own hurt. Even to his own hurt. And I'm thinking of Christ here. If the will of God directs so, faith required, yes, and assurance of that, of that greater good to which God wills us toward. So when I'm praying for myself, and I've studied and I've sought the Lord and, and I've sought out the spirits prompting in my own heart. And I say, Father, to the best of my understanding and ability, this is what I believe is needed in my life. And oh, Lord, will I, I raise this prayer and petition up to you. But I acknowledge as well that your will is to my greater good. And it may even be to my own harm. It may be that you leave the thorn that I'm asking you to take away. But Lord, if it produces that greater good in my life, I prefer your will over mine. That's a big difference. That's a big difference. So as a model for your prayers don't just tack on thy will be done as a, as a confession of your infinite or, or your in, in, in 
small contribution to that and the greatness of God. Acknowledge it as the greatness of God. Yes, I prefer your will because you are infinitely wise and infinitely holy and have my infinite good in mind and their infinite good in mind. So I lift up my petitions according to my heart and according to what I believe right to be doing. But I don't only yield to your will. I prefer it in their lives, even if it means that they hurt temporarily and even if it means that I hurt temporarily. When he adds here on earth as it is in heaven, you could probably do a whole sermon here. But I'm gleaning from that is in regard to the will of God here. Let it be done not only ultimately and eternally, but temporally and in all manners and circumstances, thy will be done perfectly. And, and to me, that's, that's striking because we could say thy will be done <coughs> eternally. Yes, you're going to bring us home. We're going to be in heaven someday. Thy will be done. <clears throat> but today I need this. Uh, to me, when he says, thy will be done, preferred, thy will be preferred, not only in the ultimate sense, in the rescue of men and the bringing of them home and into your presence, but Lord, I prefer your will today, right now, in this manner. That's tough. That's tough because sometimes our flesh wants the comfort of the moment. We do not want to endure the hardship and the difficulty and the affliction. So in the immediate moment, in the temporal sense, we don't really in our hearts want to prefer the will of God. We want the will of God to be in that moment our relief from whatever distress we're facing. Well, it may not be the will of God that you be relieved in that moment. As I've just mentioned, Paul had a thorn. And I'm sure, I've thought about this often, I'm sure I can almost imagine the prayers of Paul. Lord, I'm, I'm so hindered by this. I'm so, I'm, I'm so restrained by this thorn. It, it keeps me from excelling in this desire I have to proclaim your word and the glory which you have be given me in the third heaven. I want to speak this glorious truth. And if I could only but get rid of this hindrance, oh, how I could excel and flourish in the thing you've called me to do. How often he must have pleaded with God. If we heard that prayer, we'd say, man, God's got to deliver him. He's got a heart to proclaim the gospel. And after three times, the Lord answers and says, no. No, Paul. I have a, I have a will here that is critical to what only, not what only I'm doing in your life and through your life, Paul, but critical to what your life is and the instrumentality of your life into the life of the world and to the Gentiles and to the Jews. So, Paul, I'm leaving the thorn in place. And you have to commend Paul because immediately he adjusts, right? He doesn't go on complaining he just immediately does a complete 180 and says, I will therefore rather rejoice. I've got a thorn. I want it gone. I think I could do a lot better job, but I prefer your will. So if your will is to leave the thorn so that Christ's strength may be made perfect in me and your kingdom displayed, then so be it. Let me keep the thorn. I will go on and serve and I will go on and proclaim the truth. See the difference here. It is critical. So thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done in the matter that I'm praying about. I prefer that your will happen in the matter I'm praying about this morning. Just as much as I prefer that your will be done in the ultimate sense in eternity. 
and that you preserve those whom you've called and bring them home. Uh, that's, a, that's a high calling. Uh, think about it in your own heart. Do you want, do you prefer the will of God Monday morning? Whatever that may bring, whether it brings you a Gethsemane, whether it brings you a thorn, is it your preference? Would it be your preference? Something has to happen in the heart before that preference is there. And that's why I wrote here, is faith required? Absolutely. Absolutely. An assurance of that greater good to which God wills us towards. I have to be absolutely convinced that whatever he wills into my life today that's difficult and afflicting and even may produce physical death in me is to that greater good. I have to be so convinced that that greater good is worth this temporal suffering that I prefer the will of God that I suffer so that he may accomplish what he will to bring me to that greater good. I don't think that's man-worked-up faith. I believe that's divinely given faith, that faith which is a gift of God. I don't think we come to that place by our own strength. In verse 11, in this model as well, it is also prayer that recognizes the source of all provision. Verse 11, he says, give us this day our daily bread. I touched on this a little Wednesday night, and I may borrow a few comments from my former professor but essentially the appeal here is to your father be mindful of who who is the source of your provision uh, I thought about bread and I think he means bread here categorically as food I don't think he means just bread or else he'd say give us the our bread and our fish and our water he Bread has the idea of food in general, but it doesn't have the idea of luxury necessarily or abundance. It just speaks in regards to the category of providing for our physical survival. But it's interesting to me that he's appealing to the father here. He's, he's, the model is appeal to your father for your provision. So my mindset is going to be that all provision comes from my father. You may have a six-digit salary job a year, and you may have a cabinet full of groceries, and you may have no concerns whatsoever about where your next meal is coming from. But Jesus says, in your praying, remember, remember that all provision comes from the Father. You may not have that six-figure job if he wills it so. You may lose that job. You may lose the grocery store. If the world continues in the direction we're going, we're going, we may find that food is not all that easy to get. And in that day, we'll be reminded that our provision rests with the Lord. But he's saying, let that be the framework. So when you're praying and you're petitioning the Lord in regards to provision, understand that you ought to be directing those desires to the Lord. He is the ultimate source of your provision, of your bread. And I think equally, which is one of the things my professor brought out here, is that this is a a prayer or a model of praying or recognizing in our praying that that provision is given daily by God. Daily. Just the acknowledgement of every day. If you say, if you prayed 10 years ago, Lord, give us this day our daily bread and he provides you with a great job and you've not had any need for food and you've had your cabinets full for the last 10 years, that doesn't mean you don't start acknowledging that he is the source of that every day. Every day, every single day, 
That's really striking to me. When you get up in the morning and before we go off to work and we pray in this model, just remember that today's provision is provided by God. It is a, it is a mercy He extends towards you. It is provision for your life in this world. It is a sustaining of your physical life is God's prerogative. And so you appeal to God in regards to provision as the source of those things. I am absolutely convinced that God can provide everything that you and I need to survive. I don't mean we'll have cabinets full. Like I said Wednesday night, it may be like the manna for the people of Israel. He didn't give them a week's manna at one time. Every morning, the manna would form and they would go out and gather the manna and they had to eat all that they collected that day and then the manna would come the next day. And I think it was to build into his people the, a guard against presumptuousness. You need to look to God every day in the wilderness for your provision. He is the source of your food and water. He is the source of your survival every day. Not just 40 years, but every day of 40 years. So every day you go out and you look and you see that God has provided for that day. You give God thanks. You consume the manna and you trust him to provide the next morning. And you go out and you receive the manna again. You do that. On the Sabbath day, I'll send twice as much so that you won't go out and work on the Sabbath. And I will provide for you in that consideration as well. The point was, I am your provider. And when we pray, we ought to be mindful of that. You may, you may go to college and have a great degree and earn great money, but God is still your provider, just as much as he is the man who don't know where his next meal's coming from. God is still your provider. And our praying should always reflect him as the source of that provision, whether it be categorically food for our physical survivor or any other thing. It is a daily provision. It is a prayer that recognizes even while we're working, that provision is from the Lord. Prayer that recognizes this as a daily mercy from their father who it is, who it is acknowledged, who is acknowledged for who he is by their asking. So this daily bread, I'll share this briefly for those who weren't here Wednesday night. We had a professor that preached a whole sermon on that phrase, give us this day our daily bread. And he made a wonderful point by saying that today's bread is today's bread. You don't get today's bread tomorrow and you don't get tomorrow's bread today. It's today's bread. You receive that provision, acknowledge, give God thanks for the daily provision today, but don't wake up in the morning expecting today's bread to be there tomorrow. It's gone just like the manna. Now he provide tomorrow, but you better get tomorrow's bread as well. And he preached a whole sermon on that, spiritually speaking and metaphorically, how God provides daily and we're to receive that daily just so that we might be mindful that God is daily, moment by moment, providing for everything you have and every provision that you have. In verse 12, I phrased it this way. It is a prayer that rests and relies upon mercy in terms of the forgiveness of sins. He says here, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. It's really a striking phrase, but it's part of the pattern here. We ought to do that specifically in this prayer, certainly. But it ought to be, if I'm following the context, it ought to be a framework in which we're praying. I'm, I'm recognizing that, that in myself I am a debtor to God. 
And so I'm acknowledging that by seeking forgiveness or petitioning him forgiveness. I wrote this trying to think through this. But as a once debtor to God, we who are were sinners and have been saved, as once debtor to God, the praying man or woman realizes that he or she has nothing in himself upon which he might constrain God to grant his petition. It is a prayer that recognizes that though we are made new in Christ, we are yet, we have yet to be brought to perfection. Sin separates us from God, so the praying man appeals to mercy as the basis for all of his requests. That's why I think this is part of the framework. Because if it's not, then you're, you're going to slip into this idea that if I pray correctly or if I live well enough, then I'm constraining somehow God to act on my behalf. I love Piper's statement, many of those, but John Piper's statement. But he offended a lot of people with this. But he said, all you will get today from God is mercy. That's all you're going to get. And his meaning was the greatest blessing that could be poured into your life today is of mercy. It is not merited in any way whatsoever by your activity or by your beliefs or by your, by your discipline or by your obedience even. It is merited singularly by the sufferings and the merit of Christ's suffering. So all you and I get today is mercy. And to me, this part of the framework of the prayer and the way in which we should pray is a reminder of that reality. God is not, you are not going to put God in debt by your own good behavior so as to compel him to act and to grant you what you desire apart from his willing that. And I think that's what's involved here. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts. It's a reminder. It is a prayer offered up to God with a clear conscience as well, because he goes on to say, just as we have also forgiven our debtors. Did you notice that was past tense? Verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Uh, that's interesting to me because it seems as though the forgiveness of their debts has already produced in them a willingness to forgive those who are indebted against them. And he cites that here. Be reminded of that. In fact, it would be hypocritical to come to God and say, forgive us our debts while not having forgiven our debtors. In that, in that idea I was writing here, it is a prayer offered up to God with a clear conscience, not having withheld mercy from others while relying upon mercy from God. Who is the greater offended? Who is the greater offender, I should say, you and your sin against God or your neighbor in his sin against you? Which of you in that context is the greater offender? You see what he's saying here. In other words, as a part of our framework for prayer, you can't come to God in prayer earnestly and in a way that displays his kingdom and acknowledges his holiness and his name and his father relationship and his transcendence. You can't come to him in prayer while withholding forgiveness or mercy from those who sinned against you. You can't do that because you're appealing based on the very mercy that you're withholding from someone else. In fact, that's why I think Jesus comes back and picks it up in verse 14 and 15. For if he says you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. You remember I cited often the parable that Jesus tells about the two debtors. 
And one owed an astronomical debt. If, if you look up the terms and pay in, involved in that parable, it's an exaggeration of the first debt. It was unpayable. There's no way that that man in multiple lifetimes could ever repay such a debt as mentioned in that parable. But yet when he goes and he appeals to the king to whom he owes the debt, the king says it's forgiven. And he's set free from that astronomical debt that he could never have paid. And what does he do in response to that? He goes out and finds somebody who, comparatively speaking, owes him some minuscule amount. And the guy pleads with him, just give me some time. I'll pay you what I owe you. No, you don't get any time. Put him in prison. Of course, when the king finds out how this man who received an inestimable mercy went out and withheld even the smallest mercy, the king was enraged. And he says, go get him, throw him into prison, and he shall not come out until every last dime of that debt is paid. That's the principle involved here. And so you can see why Jesus would include this phrase and this framework for real and true prayer. Don't come to prayer, don't come to God in prayer while you're withholding forgiveness from others. Because it is, a, it is an affront to God Almighty upon whose mercy you rest to, to come to Him and to appeal to Him while you're not allowing that same mercy to flow through you into that person who sinned against you. That's what I mean. Who is the greater offender? You and your sin against God? Or that, or that neighbor who gave you a, a sly look the other day? Who's the greater offender? And who is the greatest who can be offended? Is it not God? I submit to you that you and I and our sin against God are by far the greater offenders. You, nobody has ever sinned against you and me like we sinned against God. And one reason for that is we're not holy. And you could always justify some sin against us because we sinned against somebody else and karma and you get your just dues and your just rewards. We can always make that claim, but no one can make that claim against God. And you and I both sinned against him grossly and irreverently and blasphemously. So we are, in fact, the greater debtors. And if by the mercy of God through Christ, we have access now to the throne to pray, should that should that not be in our minds as we're praying to the Father? Should that not be a part of the framework of praying? Absolutely it should. Absolutely it should. I think it was Steve Brown I used to love. He'd come on the radio. Y'all remember Steve Brown? He had a saying that I always think it was Steve Brown. But he would always say, I'm just one beggar telling another beggar where, I found, where he found bread. And I always thought, that's a good thing to keep in your mind. So no matter how much you learn about the word of God, at the end of the day, you're just a beggar who found bread and you found it by the mercy of God. And the best you can do is go tell all the other beggars where you found the bread. And the source of that is God. And that's the truth of the matter. So again, this is the framework for prayer. I want to return in closing to verse 7. After he says to them, or verse 6, after he speaks of the hypocrites and how they pray, he says to you, but... You, you Christian, you who would pray to God. When you pray, go into your inner room. I always, uh, my brother Michael know this, but I always mention uh, Louise Tucker. She's the only person I ever knew that literally had a closet. King James Version says a closet. 
go into your closet. She literally had a closet in her hallway there. Michael know what I'm talking about. She would go into that closet, had a chair, shut the door, and she would pray in her closet. The only person I ever knew who literally went into a closet to pray. I don't think he means that necessarily uh, literally here, but certainly he means it metaphorically into that inner place where nobody's listening, nobody's there to give you credit and accolades for the eloquence of your prayer. Get in that place where you and God are alone. Find that inner place, that inner room. Get alone with God. And, And if you've ever been there for a while, you don't want to leave. You don't want to leave. You can spend some time there. The problem is whenever we come out of there, we get distracted with all the things of the world and we think we don't have time to get there again. It's just too hard to get there. Maybe it's because we don't practice being there very often. But Jesus says, don't do as the hypocrites do. Go into your inner room. Uh, I, could, I could do a sermon on this, that place. And then he says, close the door, which is interesting to me. Find that, find that inner place where you're praying with God, shut the door. And don't allow yourself to go in and out of that place. Don't allow traffic to come in. Don't let things from the world penetrate in there. Shut the door. Isolate yourself alone with God. Apart from all those who might give you praise, find that place alone with God. Shut the door to every distraction that will come. And pray, he says, shut your door and, and then pray to your father. Pray to your father. I love this phrase, who is in secret. (laughs) Just you and him in that inner place with the door shut. Nobody penetrating there. Talk to your father. That's where I think you pour out your heart. That's where you weep. That's where the Lord convicts your heart and you're pierced there in that moment. And you realize just how rotten and prideful you've been that week. And you're humbled by that and tears begin to flow. And, and next thing you know, you're communing with God, whether, that, whether that's outwardly where somebody can see it and say, oh, he's really, he's really contrite. What a wonderful man. Nobody can see that. Your, your fellow church members and your family members, they don't know you've been in that room. They didn't see that. They weren't there to witness it. In that moment, it was you and it was your father. And in that environment, you realized, I think, in that moment that you were completely observable and open to God down to the very depths of your soul. And you just acknowledged in that moment, Lord, I'm here before you. I said to Brother Mike, I think I was talking to after Wednesday night, sometimes I think the best thing you can do in prayer is just to shut up. Just close your mouth. Meditate upon who it is that you're appealing to and just be quiet and listen for what the Spirit would speak into your heart. It's amazing sometimes what God will bring to mind in regards to the work that he is doing in your own life to transform you to the image of of Christ. So sometimes just be quiet. So be quiet. He goes on to say, And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Uh, I thought that was interesting as well because reward doesn't necessarily speak to me of granting the thing you request. Uh, He will reward you. And I honestly believe the reward is him. The reward is him. He He may, according to his will and his purposes, grant those things which you are requesting. But the great reward of spending that time alone with God and pouring out your heart and listening for God to speak into your heart and bringing the truth of God to bear, the, the glorious reality of that moment and the reward of that moment is that you've been drawn closer to God. You've 
come to know God. As I shared this morning from Hosea, you pressed on to know the Lord, and he himself is the reward. Uh, that's just why I believe this is a framework for prayer. Now, to me, if I, if I take this verse and I say, I'm going to recite that verse every morning, and that's going to be my devotion, uh, my heart breaks for you because you're not using it as a framework. It's not shaping the way you pray and the way you think. It's just wrote, it's just wrote in your mind. You're checking the boxes, and you think that, that now it's become some mechanism, and God is somehow obliged now to bless you and, and show himself to you because you've, you've used the mechanism correctly. It's so sad when people take Scripture to be that. It is not that. It is a means and an instrument God has given us by which he draws us to himself so that we find him as the reward. Stand with me tonight. Father, as we think about this framework, it's amazing to me as I was thinking this afternoon and even this week that it just strikes me how little we understand about prayer as a whole, not, certainly not individually. There are many who have a wonderful intimacy with you in prayer, but Father, as the church, it seems as though we've lost something in regards to prayer. We want to sing. We want to hear good preaching, but where's the prayer in the church like this? And so, Father, we confess and acknowledge that perhaps we've been in such a superabundance that we've lost our dependence upon you. We've lost a sense of our dependence upon you, so naturally we think not much of prayer. And so, Father, I pray that you would restore to us this wonderful privilege of prayer, of coming into your presence through the shed blood of Christ. Lord, I pray that it would become more to us, Lord, not that we would stand and pray audibly and others would marvel at the eloquence of our prayers, but that we might have those moments of intimacy with you where we come into your presence, where we close the door and where we worship and commune with you and where your spirit prompts our own hearts and reveals to us the work that you are accomplishing in our own lives. So, Father, thank you for this great gift. Thank you for the cross and for the blood of Christ, which purchases it for us. We had no right. We have no claim upon you whatsoever, but only by the merit of Christ. So, Father, we thank you for that mercy, and we ask for that mercy uh, this very night. Lord, we ask your blessing upon those who've come tonight. I pray that this has been helpful Wednesday and, and tonight as well to us just if for nothing else, Father, to help us to rethink our prayer lives and that we might become more fully invested in this privilege we have to pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name for his sake and glory. Amen.